BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. From the southern branch of the Jill Schwartz Memorial Library here in sultry Savannah, this is Obscure Season 2 Frankenstein. I am your host, your friend, your ear lover, your literary mansplainer-in-chief and Georgianologist Michael Ian Black about to put something through the wall. Somehow, in the move, I had to disassemble my microphone stand and because I have the spatial awareness of a three-year-old, in terms of like understanding how things get put together, how things fit together, how things join, I, for whatever reason, cannot figure out how to reassemble my microphone stand. I know what parts go into what parts, but I somehow can't make it all work as a whole. And so moments ago, as I was trying to prepare for this podcast, I ended up um, in frustration, basically tearing apart the entire thing, tossing it to the floor, ripping the microphone from the stand, and deciding to myself, self, you will just hold the microphone like a savage. And so that's what I'm doing. And uh, my heart is pounding, I'm palpitating, I'm sweating, I'm shaking a little bit. I'm all a tremble with the frustration of this meager task I had set before me. That being said, last time I was talking about all the uh, DIY stuff I've been doing, and uh, that effort has stalled a little bit because uh, there's so much to do that it's overwhelming. So it's hard to even pick like one thing to kind of do. So today, and this is this does not constitute DIYing by any stretch of the imagination, but I was replacing electrical switch plates on the electrical outlets. Um, And that is taking me far longer than it should because I'm doing that thing that I think all new homeowners do, which is you want to get everything just so. So I'm windexing each individual outlet and switch plate cover. And you may think, well, that, that sounds reasonable, Michael. Sure, until you understand that I'm also windexing the reverse side of the switch plate covers because um, there is accumulated dust on the backs of them. And though they are pressed against the wall, though nobody will ever nor can ever see them unless they are removed from the wall again, I felt obligated to clean them. I had anthropomorphized them and they were saying to me, Michael, We need a bath. Michael, we need a little scrubby. Would you give us a little scrubby? And so I did. That has slowed any progress that I might have made on the switchblade covers. Also, there's a little piece of crown molding that got somehow got screwed up, right? And and you think like, oh, in a haunted mansion, that's got to be some nice crown molding. But it's not. It's foam. You know, they make like this foam crown molding. And I guess 
at some point when they were redoing the upstairs, instead of replacing it with real crown molding, they put up the foam crown molding. No big deal, really. It looks fine. But I went to order a piece of the crown molding to fix it. It came in. I got it. And Martha said to me when I was asking where the stepladder is, she says, why, what are you doing? I said, I'm going to fix the crown molding. And she begged me not to do it. Begged me because she thought I would screw it up. Going to screw up installing foam crown molding onto the ceiling. How much of a moron does she think I am? And the answer to that question is the exact amount of moron that I am because I undoubtedly will screw it up. But I'm going to do it because what's the worst that happens? I have to replace some more foam crown molding? (sighs) Big doings in Frankenstein because Frankenstein's recitation to Walton has finally concluded. And thus, Walton's letter to Mrs. Saville, his sister in London, has concluded that's where we left it off last time, essentially caught up with the beginning of the book. The past has now merged with the present, much as a house built in 1867 has now merged with my life in 2021. Let us pick it up, Volume 3, Chapter 7 of Frankenstein. So, this is Walton in continuation of the letter that he is writing to his sister, I guess. Um, And Frankenstein has basically just said to him, hey, if I die, will you do me a solid, buddy, and chase the big buddy across the ends of the earth until you slew him dead? And Walton hasn't made any promises to that effect yet. So, August 26th, 17- This is Walton now speaking. You have read this strange and terrific story, Margaret, and do you not feel your blood congeal with horror like that which even now curdles mine? Well, okay, I have to stop already because this is a problem. You can't, as the author of the book, editorialize about how great your book is to a third party within the confines of the book because Mary Shelley's saying, hey, Margaret, Mags, what do you think about the story I just wrote? Isn't it amazing? Aren't you freaking out? You can't do that. That's cheating. You're not allowed to editorialize about how good your own story is. Leave that to other people. Sometimes, I'm back to the letter, sometimes seized with sudden agony, he could, and I was talking about Frankenstein, he could not continue his tale. At others, his voice broken yet piercing, uttered with difficulty the words so replete with anguish. His fine and lovely eyes were now lighted up with indignation, now subdued to downcast sorrow, and quenched in infinite wretchedness. Sometimes he commanded his countenance and tones and related the most horrible incidents with a tranquil voice, suppressing every mark of agitation. Then, like a volcano bursting forth, his face would suddenly change to an expression of the wildest rage as he shrieked out imprecations on his persecutor. Um, all right, so I'm just going to stop for a second because al- although Walton has now said, uh, basically, what a, what a spooky story, right? Right, Mags? 
Um, it's worth remembering that in the beginning of this story, Walton held Frankenstein in very high esteem. Remember, Walton felt himself to be a man alone in the world and wanted a friend more than anything. And so he met Frankenstein. Frankenstein kind of charmed him um, just with his, I think, you know, clearly being high-born and his gentleness and, you know, Walton kind of fell for Frankenstein. So now that Frankenstein's story is concluded... The first thing I want to know, the most important thing I want to know, is have Walton's feelings towards Frankenstein changed? At least to this point, they don't seem to have. Back to the story. His tale is connected and told with an appearance of the simplest truth. Yet I own to you that the letters of Felix and Safi, which he showed me, and the apparition of the monster seen from our ship, brought to me a greater conviction of the truth of his narrative than his asseverations. That's a word I've never seen before, asseverations. However earnest and connected, such a monster has then real existence. I cannot doubt it. Yet I am lost in surprise, and here's a key word, and admiration. Admiration. Sometimes I endeavored to gain from Frankenstein the particulars of his creature's formation, but on this point he was impenetrable. <laughs> I'm laughing because, if you recall, uh, when, you know, the, the beginning of the story, when Frankenstein is, you know, playing Victor Barbarino in Ingolstadt, he spends, you know, however long talking about how he's going to build this thing, and then within about a page, he builds it, and there's never any details of how that came to be. And I think we all agree that that's because Mary Shelley herself has no idea how somebody would do such a thing, um, nor does nor do I, or nor does anybody. I mean, you couldn't do such a thing. But it, it again, it seems to be a slight bit of editorializing on Mary Shelley's part. And then, so now he's quoting Frankenstein when he said, you know, I, was, I wanted to know how you did it. How, you did, how did you do it? How did you do it? And then uh, Frankenstein says, Are you mad, my friend? Said he. Because now it's Walton and Frankenstein I have to distinguish, so I have to go back to my Christoph Waltz voice. Or whither does your senseless curiosity lead you? Would you also create for yourself and the world a demoniacal, demoniacal, demoniacal enemy? Peace, peace. Learn my miseries and do not seek to increase your own. Frankenstein discovered that I made notes concerning his history. He asked to see them, and then himself corrected and augmented them in many places, but principally in giving the life and spirit to the conversations he held with his enemy. And I'm going to go back to just a normal voice to be Frankenstein. Since you have preserved my narration, said he, I would not that a mutilated one should go down to posterity. Wait, who's the mutilated one? He or Big Buddy? He, he corrected and augmented them in many places, but principally in giving the life and spirit to the conversations he held with his enemy. Well, so if he's correcting the conversations that he had with his enemy, which, by the way, Big Buddy comes across as far more articulate and persuasive than Frankenstein himself right? Why then does he say, I would not that a mutilated one should go down to posterity? 
because Big Buddy is the more compelling of the two figures. Big Buddy is the one who, in fact, will and should go down to posterity. And, of course, we have conflated the two characters so much now that we confuse Big Buddy and Frankenstein and call one the other. Thus has a week passed away while I have listened to the strangest tale that ever imagination formed, again editorializing on how great Mary Shelley is. My thoughts and every feeling of my soul have been drunk up by the interest for my guest, which this tale and his own elevated and gentle manners have created. I wish to soothe him, yet can I counsel one so infinitely miserable, so destitute of every hope of consolation to live? Oh no. The only joy that he can now know will be when he composes his shattered spirit to peace and death. Yet he enjoys one comfort, the offspring of solitude and delirium. He believes that when in dreams he holds converse with his friends and derives from that communion consolation for his miseries or excitements to his vengeance, that they are not the creations of his fancy, but the beings themselves who visit him from the regions of a remote world. This faith gives a solemnity to his reveries that rendered them to me almost as imposing and interesting as truth. Well, now you've captured my attention because if you recall... Over the last few months, I have been talking about my own interest in the paranormal, and what Frankenstein is describing is common among those who are close to death, visitations from those who have crossed over before. And as I sit here in the haunted mansion, I cannot help but feel my blood begin to percolate at the mention of spirits in those who have passed on. He believes them to be real. They exude a hyper-reality to his imaginings, or they exude a hyper-reality that perhaps rivals that of his current state of being on the earth. And this is a common thing, you know, when someone's on their deathbed, you know, relatives come over and say, hey, come on, you're going to go on a bus ride. And the bus, uh, we're just, we're waiting for you here at the bus stop for the bus to come, you know? So that's what's going on with Frankenstein, which can only lead me to believe that he's about to die. Our conversations are not always confined to his own history and misfortunes. On every point of general literature, he displays unbounded knowledge and a quick and piercing apprehension. His eloquence is forcible and touching. Nor can I hear him when he relates a pathetic incident or endeavors to move the passions of pity or love without tears. What a glorious creature must he have been in the days of his prosperity, when he is thus noble and godlike in ruin. He seems to feel his own worth and the greatness of his fall. When younger, said he, I believed myself destined for some great enterprise. My feelings are profound but I possessed a coolness of judgment that fitted me for illustrious achievements. This sentiment of the worth of my nature supported me when others would have been oppressed, for I deemed it criminal to throw away in useless grief those talents that might be useful to my fellow creatures. When I reflected on the work I had completed, no less a one than the creation of a sensitive and rational animal. Well, wait a second. Wait a second here. Are we not detecting 
a certain amount of paternal pride in the creation of Big Buddy, no less a one than the creation of a sensitive and rational animal. But isn't hasn't he spent the last 200 pages telling us what a beast he is and how he is incapable of reason? That he's just a monster? And yet here he is, sort of puffing himself up and say, look what I did. I made an animal. When I reflected on the work I had completed, no less a one than the creation of a sensitive and rational animal. I could not rank myself with the herd of common projectors, but this thought, which supported me in the commencement of my career. Okay, okay. So he's saying in the beginning, this is what I thought I was doing. Now serves only to plunge me lower in the dust. All my speculations and hopes are as nothing. And like the archangel who aspired to omnipotence, I am chained in an eternal hell. My imagination was vivid, yet my powers of analysis and application were intense. By the union of these qualities, I conceived the idea and executed the creation of a man. So he's gone from creating a sensitive and rational animal to, cre- to the creation of a man. Even now, I cannot recollect without passion my reveries while the work was incomplete. I trod heaven in my thoughts, now exulting in my powers, now burning with the idea of their efforts. From my infancy, I was imbued with high hopes and a lofty ambition, but how I am sunk. Oh, my friend, if you had known me as I once was, you would not recognize me in this state of degradation. Despondency rarely visited my heart. A high destiny seemed to bear me on until I fell, never, never again to rise. All right, there's a lot to digest there. Um, So let's chew on it for a second. Let's just get that cud chewing in our beaks for a bit as we take a break back in a moment here on Obscure. And we're back as Victor Frankenstein displays some contradictory emotions, some flights of reverie, which are contradictory in their nature. And it is, um, it's worth looking at them for a moment. You know, he considers himself, or he, when he thinks of his past person, he talks about his high hopes, his lofty ambition how he was rarely despondent, had a high destiny seemed to bear him on until he fell never again to rise. And yes, we recognize that. We recognize the person that Frankenstein was when he was with poor Elizabeth and poor Henry Clerval, the three musketeers dancing in the Swiss Alps, plotting their futures and their fortunes. And do we not all recognize in that youthful hope ourselves, that glittering hope presented before us like little chips of diamonds just beyond our grasp and we reach for them. It is, I don't know, it's 
it's kind of making me sad a little bit, maybe because I am now an old and embittered man myself. I'm not old and I'm not embittered, but I am older and I am maybe more bitter than I once was. But age, I think, will do that. Age will grind you down to a certain degree. It will wear you away as surely as it will eventually wear away the Alps. And we are left to ponder who we were against who we have become. And there is something in Frankenstein now, however much he has suffered, and lordy, lord, he has suffered, that does make him, in my estimation, a little more human. In his suffering, in his fall, he has become just like the rest of us. Celebrities, they're just like us. They build big buddies and they suffer just like us. All of our creations are doomed eventually to run away from us. Um, That can be a joyful thing. We want that to happen in a certain respect. What we don't want is for them to murder our friends and family. Understandably so. Is all cre- I'm going to I'm going to I'm going to ask a big question here. I don't know the answer to it. Is all creation in some respects also an act of destruction in realizing whatever creative impulse we have are we also equally destroying? What do I mean by that? I'm not sure. But this is this is what I think I'm hazarding. The act of creation is about Um, transferring potential energy into kinetic energy. And eventually, that kinetic energy must run out. It must expire. Or maybe I'll put it a different way. It's about locating in space and time. It is about freezing something in space and time. A creation is about setting forth into the world that which was only abstract. And when something is only abstract, in a way, it is perfect. In a way, it is flawless. In a way, it is its own platonic ideal. The imagination is perfect. The execution is by necessity flawed. That goes for every word that is jotted on a page every painting that is put to canvas, and it is indeed also the case of every uh, living being. We are perfect. We are flawed. When we are fixed in place as ourselves, we are, in a sense, all big buddy. All of us flawed. All of us doomed. All of us suffering. And Frankenstein is no different than his creation. And his creation is no different than him. Back to the book. Must I then lose this admirable being? I have longed for a friend. I have sought one who would sympathize with and love me. Behold, on these desert seas I have found such a one. But I fear I have gained him only to know his value and lose him. I would reconcile him to life, but he repulses the idea. I thank you, Walton, he said, for your kind intentions towards so miserable a wretch. But when you speak of new ties and fresh affections, think you that any can replace those who are gone? Can any man be to me as Clerval was, or any woman another Elizabeth? 
Even when the affections are not strongly moved by any superior excellence, the companions of our childhood always possess a certain power over our minds, which hardly any later friend can obtain. They know our infantine dispositions, which, however they may be, af- they may be afterwards modified, are never eradicated, and they can judge of our actions with more certain conclusions as to the integrity of our motives. A sister or a brother can never, unless indeed such symptoms have been shown early, suspect the other of fraud or false dealing. Well, I don't know about that. When another friend, however strongly he may be attached, may, in spite of himself, be contemplated with suspicion. But I enjoyed friends, dear not only through habit and association, but from their own merits. And wherever I am, the soothing voice of my Elizabeth and the conversation of Clerval will be ever whispered in my ear. They are dead. And but one feeling in such a solitude can persuade me to preserve my life. If I were engaged in any high undertaking or design, fraught with extensive utility to my fellow creatures, then I could live to fulfill it. But such is not my destiny. I must pursue and destroy the being to whom I gave existence. Then my lot on earth will be fulfilled, and I may die. End of letter. Um, well, it's true what he says, and it's, and it's, uh, it's quite an insight, I think, for Mary Shelley to have at her young age to know even then that the people who have known us the longest are the ones whom, though our relationships may be complicated, uh, the ones who know us the best, it is impossible to replace those relationships. It just is. It is the old, they knew me when sensation. And it's hard to... You know, as you get older, it's harder and harder to make friends. I don't know why that that should be, but it but it is for a lot of people. It is for me, and you end up cherishing the people you have known the longest, those who have seen you through your life, and those whom you have seen through theirs. It's increasingly valuable as you get older, as I'm sure all of you know. You know those touchstones in your life that you can return to time and time again. I don't know why, but I'm I mean I'm thinking about Carl <laughs> Reiner and Mel Brooks. And how they had each other. And now Carl uh, Reiner has just died, and Mel Brooks must just be distraught. I mean, you just think about somebody who have people who have been friends for, you know, half a century, 70 years or more. And then one of them goes, and you know, that's sad. That really has not much to do with the book. But Walton is basically saying, hey, will you be my friend? And Frankenstein is saying, nah, I'm good. I'm good. Uh, I'm, not, I'm, I'm not in the market for friends, kid. I, I've had some friends. They were cool. No offense, but, you know, you're no Clerval, Walton. No Clerval, you. And you can't blame him, you know? He's saying, I have no purpose in this life. I'm not meant at this point in my life to be intimate with anybody ever again. My only intimacies now are with ghosts, are with the spirits with whom I commune by night and the spirit whom I chase by day.
It's a haunted existence. And I suppose haunting is how we will leave it as I speak to you from the haunted mansion here in the southern branch of the Jill Schwartz Memorial Library. We're getting close to the end. And yeah, we're going to get through it, you guys. And, and it's good. I mean, I like it now. Now I'm into it. I mean, look, the part we read today was maybe a little repetitive, but I'm into it. It just, didn't, it just doesn't seem like it needed to take 200 pages, you know, for me to get into it. I would have, had I not been reading it, I would have put it, you know, to you, I would have put it down, down, down. Oh, come on, Michael, learn how to talk. I would have put it down long ago. But here we are, and let us bask in the sunshine of our literary enjoyment of these last few pages of Frankenstein. I really don't know how it's going to end. I mean, does he set him off on the ice and watch him go? Does Frankenstein die? You know, or, or, I mean, does Shelley set up a sequel in the Frankenstein universe? I don't know how this goes. You know, I'm, I'm excited to see how all of this ends in the next five pages or so. I suspect it will be with a whimper, not with a bang. That's okay. I'm in a very forgiving mood today. And so we will find out next time on another spectral episode of Obscure. But until then, I wish you adieu. Obscure Season 2 Frankenstein was produced by myself, Michael Ian Black, Robin Lynn, Jennifer Brennan, and Mary Shimkin. It was recorded in the wilds of Connecticut at the Jill Schwartz Memorial Library. Theme music by Craig Wedrin. If you would like to support this podcast, please join us at patreon.com slash Black. This is a podcast that does not receive any outside funding other than the funding that you yourself give it. So if you would like to support it, please do patreon.com slash Black.